This episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast is sponsored by Mr. B, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. Check out their products in your local grocery store or online at mrb.com. All right, everybody. Welcome back. CJ, what's up, brother? What's happening, Cooper? Another week telling authentic West Virginia stories here on the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Um, hey, guys, look, we have a fun episode. It's um, a little bit of, you know, they call it blast to the past, a little bit of deep dive into history. We talked to Chuck Keeney, who's a author, a historian, a professor, a great guy, and he came on a podcast to talk pretty specifically about the Battle of Blair Mountain and all of that encompasses CJ. He was clearly, he knows his stuff. I, I mean, I think he's an expert, right? We'll call him. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely. an expert. I think he, he said he, did, he jokingly said he didn't want to be the, the Blair Mountain guy, but I, he kind of is because he knows so yeah. much about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this guy like gets you fired up. He's telling the story of, and it, you know, for those who may or may not know much about Blair Mountain, uh, the 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 battle at Blair Mountain was during the West Virginia Mine Wars, and so if you don't know much about that, one thousand percent stick around because he kind of gives a brief overview of the really the the severity of of the mine wars and how just how crazy this was. It was almost like a I don't want to call it a mini civil war, but it almost was kind of like that. It was, you know, it, it was just wild, um, wild situation there in, you know, Kanawha County, then Boone and down into the coal fields of Link, Logan and Mingo counties and, and just a very fascinating story. And, you know, he also is the co-founder of the uh, Mine Wars Museum. And then, uh, you know, he fought to keep... Blair Mountain on the National Register of Historic Places. So we get into all of that stuff. Very, just a really good West Virginia story. Uh, like you said, blast from the past. This is crack open the history books, turn to page 52, because we are going back in time. And this is a great episode, Coop. It is. So yeah, think about this is early 1920s, uh, American history, West Virginia history. I'll read you the Wikipedia page. We'll, we'll get you to the episode here shortly, but it's the largest uh, labor uprising in United States history and the largest armed uprising since the Civil War. Yeah, so, so there you go. <laughs> it's it, like the if Civil you've heard War, of this, all like, Civil War. this was like a little event. Like this was a major scale event that happened in West Virginia. And he talks about why it's actually kind of been kept out of the history books yeah. uh, from King Cole. And we, we kind of talk about the the dirty trick of, you know, he whoever wins history, right, writes the history books or wins the war, writes the history book, kind of fuck that up. But, but basically the point <laughs> is, is that there's a lot to unpack in that it still affects uh, people and regions and culture throughout West Virginia. And, um, and really just the last like 30 years is this right. finally get the mine wars, the battle for, at Blair Mountain, getting into the history books. And that's a point that he gets into because right after that, that it was, it was pretty much just a secret. If you knew about it, you knew about it, but you weren't being taught about it. And sure. so it was just one of those where, like you said, uh, a lot of people and a lot of money trying to cover up that dark history of uh, West Virginia. But certainly it's something to, you know, continue to discuss today because of its historical importance. And really just like at the end of the day, coal, just to add another layer to the the, the importance of coal in West Virginia and coal miners and uh, unionization and, you know, all of those um, things that encompass like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
the right to work and, and labor and, and the importance of coal in West Virginia. So, yeah, huge, it's a huge. great, great story. So, Chuck Heaney is fantastic. Before we get to that, Cooper, a couple of news and notes. You want to lead this one? or Yeah, let's do it. We're yeah. recording this. This is on the 14th. We're doing our little intro. We're recording this in exactly two weeks from today, which would be, if you're good at math, that would be the 28th of September. That's going to be the Fife street brewing happy hour that mountaineer media is teaming up with our good friends over there at fife street and we're gonna do a sponsored happy hour uh you can come to it and we're gonna buy your first drink if you want to come there and drink a beer on us all you gotta do is go to mountaineermedia.org you rsvp you give us your name your email you show up on the 28th of fife street downtown charleston there's parking garages right near the area you guys know downtown but if you're coming from huntington or you're coming from somewhere else pretty easy to find it's a beautiful little property that they renovated cj i know you've frequented there quite a bit um and we're excited to meet people we're gonna do we're gonna hang out we're just gonna talk we're gonna network we're gonna enjoy some craft beer and this is our first step into our live events that we're gonna get into yeah so i participated in fife street's first ever trivia night and uh, yeah we'll we'll, uh let's just say that for everybody listening you participated (laughs) i i participated (laughs) <laughs> was it West Virginia history? Was it? Was no, it West Virginia no, 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 no. Oh, okay. Have you ever been to one of those trivia nights? They Once, just have like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it fun. is a They're lot fun. of fun. But then, like you, all of these history or these trivia nights are, I feel like, are all the same. Like the first, there's two halves, right? The first half questions are always a little easier than the second half. So you get through the first half and you're like, man, we're we're seven for nine, we're eight for nine, we're feeling good. And then the back half, level two, <laughs> yeah, level two, and you're like, oh. We just went two for nine on the back half, and uh, yeah, you you don't win going for two for nine on the back half. And you start drinking more, so that might yeah, yeah, factor doesn't in. Help. Actually, I think that does help oh, sometimes, maybe. but then you your your confidence goes up just a little bit. So the first thing that pops into your head, you're like, "That's it, it's that." You know? So you're shouting, you're shouting wrong answers more yeah, loudly. It, yeah, exactly. And then, but maybe you do that on purpose so other teams around you think that that's the answer. If you sound com- there is some theory behind that. If you say it confidently, confidently and shout it, maybe the teams around you think that it's right. And then you're like, it's not the right answer. You know, whatever. Put that in print. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Yeah, Trivia Night, though, was a lot of fun at Fife Street. It is going to be an awesome time. Uh, The Mountaineer Media-sponsored happy hour. We are going to be there from probably about 5 to 7. If you get there a little earlier, we'll we'll be there. If you're staying a little later, we'll probably be there a little later, too. But Sneaky good food. Sneaky good food. I will add that. Sneaky good. Mexican street corn like grilled cheese sandwich i mean that sounds crazy but it bangs man so if like you're come hungry um we won't buy your food we will buy your beer but (laughs) but come there and get a little something to eat and uh it's sneaky good they have this hummus also they have buffalo chicken dip really good buffalo chicken dip but this hummus they have this pineapple sriracha hummus with the pita bread oh it does sound good fire it's so good doesn't matter anyway it's uh it, it doesn't matter what beer you have with it all of them are perfect. They accompany this pineapple sriracha hummus perfectly. I love so, it. So, all right, so, let's get to it. Cooper, good stuff. And let's get to this week's episode with Chuck Keeney. Hit it. The uh, sun does not always shine. West Virginia, but the people always do.
right, everybody. Welcome back to the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Chuck, good morning. What's up, man? Good morning. How are you? We're doing well. We're CJ, good. what's up, man? Good morning. Yeah, everything's good. Groovy here. And we're excited to have you on, man. We were just talking before we got rolling here. Um, I feel like, you know, our producer, Mason Jack's not on here right now. Um, got called into work, but he's keenly like a historian, like amateur historian, very interested in like the West Virginia, the historical like aspect that 1880s through like the early 1900s. I myself kind of have a keen fascination with mine history. My great, you know, my grandparents, great grandparents, extended family were all coal miners, came over from Poland, kind of classic, worked in the mines up in the Wheeling, um, Wheeling area. But so we, so I say all that to say that I've been following and we've been following your Twitter feed and kind of just aware of your position as a historian, as an author, as a professor. And personally, you have a direct connection to the story of the Battle of Blair Mountain in a real, real direct way with your great grandfather, Frank. So welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on, man. But let me just let me just start with the dilemma, I guess, that you described in that 100 Days in Appalachia blog, I believe. And I think it's a good place to start because you were kind of internally conflicted, I think, when you were thinking about how involved do I become in this? Will I be ostracized? Will I be judged? Will people kind of think differently about me? Maybe walk us through those early kind of uh, emotions that you were going on when maybe you were stepping into kind of a new chapter of your life. Yeah, well, uh, the article that you're referring to is an excerpt from my book, uh, okay. Road to Blair Mountain. And it's from actually from the, the, the first chapter in my book. Um, uh, you know, I've always been, of course, drawn to this history because of my personal connection. My great grandfather, Frank Keeney, who was president of the United Mine Workers in West Virginia from 1917 to 1924. And he was also president of the State Federation of Labor also mm. uh, during that time. So he was a really influential labor leader. You know, and, and so I was into the history. As I was working on my doctorate, I was uh, doing a dissertation. I was actually doing a dissertation on World War II. I, I, I actually okay. didn't do it on the mine wars. I did a master's thesis on the mine wars and published some articles. But I didn't want to be known as the Blair Mountain guy. <laughs> uh, ironically, that's I didn't want to, to, to like make my name for that. I thought that was too easy. But it didn't turn out that way. Um, so I was working on my dissertation. I took a job at Southern uh, in the coal fields uh, because the economy was taking a downturn and uh, and I had an opportunity to go to Logan and teach there. And I thought I would take it. And just as I did that, this controversy with the Blair Mountain battlefield unfolded. And this is where the industry was working, uh, particularly Arch Coal and at the time Alpha Natural Resources, um, which uh, they've changed now to Alpha Metallurgical Resources. But they uh, intended to blast the battlefield with mountaintop removal, and they worked with the governor's office at the time the governor was Manchin, and Blankenship and a few other major co-operators to get it removed from the National Register illegally. Hmm. And um, so some people approached me about the possibility of recreating the Miners' March. This was back in 2011. as kind of a protest march to try to save the battlefield. Wow. Um, and we did a, a, a five-day, 50-mile march uh, in the oh, first shit. week of June 2011. And uh, when I was approached about this possibility and I went to a meeting, this is what I was writing about because here I was in the middle of the coal fields. I'd never been an activist of any kind. 
I'd never even been to a protest before. <laughs> uh, Here so, you are leading the march. <laughs> right, right. And so, uh, and, and I knew how it would be perceived locally because we right. were trying to stop mountaintop removal. If you say anything, if you criticize the coal industry in any way, you know, that's kind of like being called a witch in colonial Salem, you know, <laughs> um, true. In, in West Virginia. And so, you know, I knew that I was going to be branded with things like hippie and, you know, environmental you know wacko and all this kind of stuff and people would try to discredit me and so i really had to weigh that heavily uh, uh when i first started it because i would knew it would change people's perception of me uh, and uh, of course it did but as you can see over time we began to win people over uh with uh, saving the battlefield which ultimately we got it relisted we won a federal court case uh, wow. against the industry in 2016 uh, and in fact uh, we one of the judges that ruled with us uh, on one of our cases was Merrick Garland by the way who wow. you know apparently oh DOJ. Uh, but um, we won a federal court case and got it put back on the national register so they can't blast it with mountaintop removal and so uh, it's back on there and of course this is what got us to start up the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum uh, and, and really kind of uh, unwittingly, the coal industry's efforts to wipe out the history has actually led to a resurgence of the history. It's made it more popular than ever before. And it's kind of backfired on them. That's funny. Yeah, that, that's insane. I mean, so let me help help me understand, too. So they were trying to use the, the current or the, the site of the Battle of Blair Mountain to for more mining, for more mountaintop removal. So yes. that's why they're that's why I was trying to be removed from like being a historic place that people could visit and pay homage to the events there. Yeah, yeah. They, they wanted to uh, blast it and, and, and uh, take away the coal. They also wanted to build the, they, they had to deal with the National Guard to build an airstrip there. Uh, also, they were going to blast part of the battlefield and use it for a 7,000 foot airstrip. And we wow. found out this, this wasn't publicized. We found about this through the Freedom of Information Act. And so it, uh, we found ourselves dealing with a couple of coal companies, a couple of major landowning companies, uh, which really have the influence in West Virginia. People don't talk about landowning companies, the companies yeah. that lease the land to the coal companies like Natural mm. Resource Partners and Western Pocahontas Partners, these companies that you never even hear about. Uh, there are politicians in the state that can't tie their shoes without permission from these land companies. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, <laughs> anyway, they had this deal with the National Guard. So I find myself dealing with these huge companies and the National Guard and the state government. Uh, it, it, it was a mess. Uh, it, it was a complete mess. But we were able to you know, navigate our way through that and um, win the case before the West Virginia Surface Mine Board. We took a unique approach when I, when I was trying to save this battlefield. I didn't want it to be like protests. We did one major protest, that big march. But I didn't want it to be like, I didn't want us to be lumped in with the environmentalists. I mean, I wasn't going to go tie myself to a tree or something right. like that, you know, because I think that stuff is ineffective. And, um, well, it's ineffective. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And plus, I just think it's kind of, ridiculous but <laughs> aside from that uh i i didn't want to take that approach we took a different approach and we won and that's what i, I wrote my book about and also about the memory of, of why 
preserving this place is important and why preserving the history of it is important because it's a history that was taken deliberately out of the textbooks. I've got a chapter in my book that's about this, and there's a paper trail for this. It's not something I made up. Right. Phil Conley, who controlled what the what was in the curriculum of West Virginia history classes. You've had West Virginia history in the eighth grade if you're from here, right? Right, oh, yeah. right. Right, where you learn the counties in alphabetical order. Uh, you uh, study for the Golden Horseshoe. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they tell you that Mary Lou Retton is the first lady on a Wheaties cereal box. You know, uh, <laughs> that's so true, the... man. That's so, I vividly remember that. <laughs> You've got five questions right there. We're studying for it here. Yeah, that was my quiz. That was my quiz <laughs> yeah. in eighth grade. Right, there. Yeah. Uh, right. You, you learn all the little trivia about our state, but you don't learn any real history. And that's deliberate. Oh, uh, wow. That's were, a good way um, to look at it. Huh? It's a good way to look at it. It's more trivia than it is history, but uh, right. continue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's trivia. You you learn little tidbits. Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. Yeah. You know, uh, Chuck Barry. You know, Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. That's really cool. It's really cool that he's from West Virginia. But that doesn't really teach you anything about West Virginia, does it? <laughs> right. uh, or about yeah. our history or how we yeah. got to where we are. Well, um, it was deliberately taken out of textbooks. In fact, uh, Homer Adams Holt, who was governor uh, during the Great Depression, he refused. Uh, to uh, cooperate with New Deal projects from the federal government uh, because the federal government made a bunch of books, a history book for every state. And the one they made for West Virginia had the mine wars in it and it had Mother Jones and it had the Hawks Nest disaster and some things like that. And Holt wrote a letter to the president and said that he would not cooperate, the state of West Virginia would not cooperate with any of FDR's economic initiatives if they don't take that stuff out of the textbooks. Wow. Um, and I did, uh, I've got the letters, uh, you know, and I quote them uh, in, in my book. So it was deliberately taken out. They didn't want anything that would cast the coal industry in a negative light. And that's mm -hmm. part of the controversial part about this history is it doesn't make coal look great. And right. we're in a state where, you know, it's friend of coal or bust kind yeah. of uh, the way a lot of people feel that way. Uh, but it does not cast the industry in a positive light at all. And that's why they wanted to bury it. This and it so makes unions look good and they don't want unions to look good. Yeah, mm -hmm. true. And and I want to get to some of the, the characters that you've spoken about there um, at some point in this. But sure. you, your, your book is called The Road to Blair Mountain, Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield from King Cole. I think it could have easily been uh, The Battle for Blair Mountain Part 2. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like you're uh, it's like you're you, it was almost like you're defending and fighting on that hill again. Just, you know, 90 what? years later, it was almost like it's it was its own battle. In its own, you know, just 90 years later, after the fact, you're fighting for uh, rights, you know, keeping, mm. preserving the mountain, fighting for moral justice, historical justice, you know, it was like, it was almost a... a, a yeah, a, no, you, you're right. Just a new uh, version of the battle, almost 100 years later. You're right. Uh, and, and you have, uh, you know, some of the same players involved, you know, you got the coal companies, you got some of the descendants of some people involved. I mean, even just uh, like state and federal, you know, agencies were fighting mm -hmm. you. It's crazy. Yeah. And we had a couple of, you know, uh, serious incidents, too. I mean, uh, uh, one of our uh, members of our group, a former coal miner by the name of Joe Stanley, he uh, somebody threatened him with a gun. Um, and out of uh, and uh, all that's in the book, uh, I got threats. We got followed. Uh, all kinds of all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, uh, to make things interesting. But anyway, but okay. So so 
let me for people listening says i think our audience is usually like you know late 20s early 30s some people and you know maybe this podcast will be the first true exposure to the battle of blair mountain is there okay. can you maybe just summarize exactly so we talk about the the after effects but can you mm -hmm. talk about what exactly this is taking place in like the late you know, 19, 19 teens, all the way to 1920s range. Right. So the America put it in context, we're coming out of World War One. Um, you know, West Virginia mm -hmm. in, in that time, coal was booming. But the the biggest thing is, I guess, the and this is where my grandparents came up right around this time period. My I think it was my great great grandfather was killed in the mines, possibly, I think I'm saying this correctly, and was carried out as my great grandfather was going into his shift. And he just mm -hmm. had to go into his shift his great grandfather was being dead carried out of the mine. Yeah. So it's like, this is the time of, of tough, tough work and maybe just help us like understand what exactly the battle was about. And not yeah. to just totally retcon that question, but maybe you could even just slightly back up and start with a couple of the battles of the mine wars that yeah. led up to what happened at Blair mountain. Cause it all kind of runs together and it's all very important background knowledge. Right. Okay. So let's go all the way back to the 1880s. Shall yeah, let's we? Do it. Uh, yeah, let's it's... do it. <laughs> to the 18 okay let me try to give <laughs> to the you... 1880s we go <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's try to do a a, a crash course here in mind wars <laughs> history all right so go back to the 1880s and this is when they really discovered that there's a ton and tons of coal in, in west virginia of yeah. course they knew that there was coal in west virginia before they didn't know how much and they begin to do geologic surveys and really understand that there's a, a just gigantic amounts of coal here and high quality coal, not just for thermal purposes, but metallurgical purposes. So um, this leads to kind of uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, a mad dash for land in West Virginia with a lot of uh, companies from Philadelphia, New York, even London coming in and buying up territory like you heard of the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Right. And a lot of people think that the Hatfield-McCoy feud was all about a pig, right? Okay. Uh, but in reality, if you look a little deeper into it, uh, it was about a land grab. They were wanting the 5,000 acres that the Hatfields owned because they found out how much coal there was. And ultimately, they used bounty hunters to run them off their land. And Philadelphia Company comes in and builds the town of Matewan and uh, the Norfolk and Western Railroad because they want to get railroads to get that coal out. Point being is uh, they start taking up land and they use a lot of nefarious re ways to take land from native West Virginians. Things like the broad form deed, which was created in 1892. Uh, that was uh, that was the concept of mineral rights, right? If locals wouldn't sell them property, well, we're going to create a new law that's going to allow us to buy what's underneath your feet. Mm. And so <laughs> we're just going to uh, take it. Yeah. If you won't sell the surface to us, then we'll take what's underneath the surface and we'll make a new law that yeah. enables us to do that. And a lot of these, of course, just like Jim Justice is a co-operator, a lot of these early governors were heavily invested in the coal industry. A.B. Fleming or even Henry Gasway Davis, Stephen Elkins, you know, they have towns named after them. You know, mm -hmm. in West Virginia today, there's a big statue of Henry Gasway Davis uh, in downtown Charleston. Or people don't even know that it's there, but there he is. You know, these guys were heavily invested in all these, and they were also major politicians that ran the parties in West Virginia. So they made sure that all the things were conducive to the industry. Anyway, so they let, grab up the land, and then they run either run the people off the land or the people that owned the land, like my family that had been in uh, these mountains since the 1750s. Eskdale, right? In the Eskdale area? Or yeah, they, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Kind of um, Eastern Kanawha County, more or less, right? Yeah, yeah, the, that's right. They settled in the Greenbrier Valley in the 1750s and early 1800s. They move over into what's now Cabin Creek. Yeah. Um, Zeke from Cabin Creek. A lot of history in that Eastern Kanawha County area. Cold, yeah. basketball, <laughs> football, yeah. a lot of a lot of stuff going on over there. Hey, that's why I'm a lifelong Lakers fan. There you uh, go. As most West Virginians are. It makes yeah. sense. It makes sense. Yeah, grew up hearing about Jerry West. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they make these land grabs, and a lot of the families that lose their land end up working in coal camps, where, of course, and, right. and if you're from West Virginia, you know this part of the story, you know, that you've got company towns with company houses, company stores. Company stores served as like a, a, a early 20th century version of Walmart right. uh, in a variety of ways. You had to shop there, and everything that you bought came from that store, everything that you Paid bought. Paid with script, which is like not real money, money, which is... Yeah. Cold right. Money. And uh, at the Mountain Wars Museum, we even have examples of script that are for specific items, like things mm. like that, that just say good for one loaf of bread or <laughs> good for dynamite because they had to buy their own dynamite. They had to buy their own equipment uh, wow. at, the, at the company store. So you're not getting paid in American money. You don't own your own house. Um, you have mine guards, this private police system that the companies used to police their towns when they didn't have sheriffs and things like this, that the miners really, really hated. They hated the mine guards above all other things because they saw it as this brutal police state. So anyway, the companies are making 100% profit, but the people don't have uh, freedoms. They don't have freedom of mobility, don't have freedom of speech. They can't talk about unions. They can't talk about anything uh, that... Um, uh, goes against the company and the companies have a vested interest in keeping the union out of West Virginia. This is important to understand. And I'm getting a little long into this, but no, please, you're fine. Uh, this is important to understand why it was from the beginning, an intense situation. West Virginia is further away. Of course, it's selling coal for electricity. Coal-fired power plants are just getting going. Uh, the first coal-fired power plant was invented in 1882 by Thomas Edison. A lot of people don't know that Edison oh, wow. also invented the coal-fired power plant. Um, smart so bitch was on a roll. Yeah, that guy, that guy <laughs> he, do a lot. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he invented the light bulb, and he's like, "Well, this doesn't do me any good unless I can get electricity to the light <laughs> yeah, bulb." Yeah. yeah. Um, and he can't make any money unless he uh, gets money. <laughs> so it was. Uh, it worked out well for him. That's for sure. Um, so anyway, um, if you're shipping coal from West Virginia to places like Detroit, Chicago, there are. Other coal mines that are much closer to those cities, like in Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Western PA used to be big coal country, you know, uh, said in Colorado, they're all closer to these major cities. So West Virginia coal companies, if they want to sell to these cities, they've got to sell it, find a way to sell it cheaper so that, because it's more expensive for them to ship it. Mm. How do they cut costs? Well, they cut costs by keeping the union out because mm. all those other states that I just mentioned had unionized. Uh, and they had union workers, and West Virginia was non-union, and so they could sell their coal cheaper. So the West Virginia coal companies were selling their coal cheaper than all the other coal companies, and they were running them out of business. Yeah. And so those other states, the companies in those other states, go to the United Mine Workers and say, you got to uh, organize West Virginia, or we're cutting our contracts with you. 
because West Virginia coal companies are undercutting us. And so this made it a a do or die situation for the United Mine Workers. They had to organize West Virginia to survive. Meanwhile, the coal operators felt like they had to keep the union out to beat their competitors. So both sides believe that this is a life and death struggle from the very beginning. And that's not even counting the harsh conditions that the miners were living and working in. And one final statistic I always like to give, between 1880 and 1920, West Virginia coal miners suffered a higher death rate than American soldiers in World War I. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So you had a better chance of going you know, to France and fight the Germans and living than you did if you stayed in West Virginia coal mine. So in those conditions, of course, people are going to fight back. They're going to resist. So they go on strike in 1912 uh, to get union recognition in the Canal coal fields in Canal County, which were all the big coal mines were at that point. And amidst that, they all get evicted. They all start living in tents. And my great-grandfather then emerges as a leader of the miners in that and kind of led a guerrilla warfare resistance in the hills of uh, Canal County against the mine guards. Don't know how many people were killed in the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike, but somewhere between 50 and 100. Uh, people were killed uh, in that strike. They had instances where they ambushed mine guards and killed uh, 10 or 11 of them at a time and put signs on their corpses that said, gone to hell. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, So this was brutal stuff. Not all West Virginia history is good history. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. Uh, And, you know, the, the, the operators retaliated, you know, with like the Bull Moose special where they had an armored train that shot machine gun fire into the tent colonies. Um, So, I mean, this was a real life and death struggle, but the miners ultimately win this strike and gain some union recognition in Kanawha County. Then my great-grandfather, along with Fred Mooney, kind of his right hand man. Frank Keeney. Frank Frank Keeney, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He uh, then gets elected president of the union in West Virginia. They start an organizing drive through World War I, and they organize every county in West Virginia except three, Logan, Mingo, and McDowell. And so after World War I, now the fight is centered on Logan, Mingo, and McDowell counties and trying to unionize them and the co-operators there trying to keep them out. And the centerpiece of that was Mingo County, where you had uh, what's known as the Mate One Massacre in 1920. Uh, You also had uh, other violent incidents, the three-day Battle of the Tug, which took place on both sides of the Tug River and lasted for three days and killed over 30 people. and just three days and state troopers were uh, brought in and miners were fighting against state troopers. Um, it was the state police, in fact, were created after World War I specifically to put down the strike in Mingo County. That's Ooh, why oh the gosh. state police was created by Governor Morgan. Excuse me, uh, Governor Cornwell. Um, that's why. I mean, that's in the books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, Early on, the state police and the miners were very antagonistic towards one another. Well, all this kept leading up to a head. Uh, In the summer of 1921, all the miners in Mingo County were living in tents, just like in Pink Creek and Cabin Creek. State troopers, after the three-day battle of the Tuck, attacked the tent colony, rip up the tents, steal the food. They cut off food supplies. The United Mine Workers were shipping food to the people and living the tents, and the state police cut them off and cut off their food supplies. And they also cut off their water supplies. They poured gasoline down all the wells, Ooh, arrested man. all the miners, and started holding them without uh, trial or anything. Just 
held uh, all the miners and left the women and children there without any food. Then the week after that, Sid Hatfield, the uh, chief of police in Matewan, gets murdered on the Dow County Courthouse steps. And after that, it, it just everything hits the fan. Um, miners, like how World War One started, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's similar to that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, somebody gets assassinated, and then yeah. things just, just uh, snowball. Yeah. Uh, after that, there's uh, a meeting on August the seventh, nineteen twenty-one, at the state capitol. At the time, the capitol building was on Capitol Street downtown. Mm. Uh, I think it, it, it was further up, you know, close to where the little park area is. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, up from, uh, you know, uh, up past Taylor Books. Yeah. As, as you're going towards the Capitol Market. You guys know the town, so you yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, listening yeah. to this know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, that's where the Capitol was. And so about 5,000 miners congregate around the Capitol, most of them armed, on August the 7th, a week after Sid Hatfield was murdered. They uh, get a list of demands to the governor, but the governor won't meet with them. My great-grandfather comes out to the miners and tells them the governor won't meet with them, that there's no justice in West Virginia. Then he tells them famously the only way you can get your rights is with a high-powered rifle. And he tells them to go home and await the call to march. And the call came out 10 days later. And then uh, by August the 24th, uh, miners are gathering at Marmette, at Lens Creek. Most of those miners were from Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, by the way. The first, about 5,000 of them mm -hmm. gathered there at Marmette. And then from there, they walked to Racine and Boone County, where they're met up with, with miners from Boone County and Fayette County that come in. And then miners from uh, Fairmont come down. Here's a tidbit. Wow. Of course, uh, miners from the Fairmont field came down, and that's where the pepperoni roll came from, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. Uh, miners, uh, Italian miners in the Fairmont field, you know, regularly ate. It was a staple part of their diet at that time. Uh, and knowing that they were going on the march, they probably took some with them. So there were probably pepperoni rolls at Blair Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we can't wow. prove that. I uh, can't <laughs> prove it yet. But uh, so, so just picture if you're listening to this, just picture, yeah, some miner. He's he's polishing his rifle and in his his little pocket. He's he's got three to four pepperoni, pepperoni rolls, rolls. <laughs> saved up for later in the that's afternoon. Cool. I mean, that's that's crazy. right. That's right. Um, and if I can just somehow work Mothman into this story, you know, yeah. <laughs> you'd really have the, the full West Virginia history right there. Yeah, I get Mothman and Braxton County Monster in there. <laughs> So, uh, so it's culminating. So, so tensions are building. I mean, clearly, like the, the capital is being surrounded by armed miners. It's clear and evident that, you know, this is not just going to go away and things aren't just going to like dissipate. So I think right. And this is August. You said this is late August. Yeah. Okay. 1912 yeah. still? Or are we still? No, no we're 1921 now. 21. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. I'm all the way to 1921. And so, um, what happens, of course, they, they march all the way down. Uh, a number of incidents takes place that where the march, the battle probably may, maybe could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. But uh, ultimately, there was another shootout in Sharpless uh, in Logan County, which is about five miles north of Blair Mountain. Now, why was it called the Battle of Blair Mountain? Well, the miners actually weren't going to Blair Mountain. Hmm. That wasn't their destination point. Yeah, okay? yeah. They're trying to get to Mingo County, yes. where the women and children were in the tent colonies and their food had been cut off and all the other miners had been holed up and pinned. So that's where they were headed. But mm. in order to get through there, they had to go through Logan County. And just north of Logan, the town, uh, you have uh, you know a series of ridge lines that almost 
makes kind of a natural wall. Blair Mountain is the southern end of that Spruce Fork Ridge. It's actually the name of the ridge, and it stretches for a little over 10 miles. And so Don Chafin, the notorious anti-union sheriff of Logan County, uh, who had 300 deputies in Logan. Uh, think about it, 300 deputies in Logan. Have you yes, been to yeah. Logan lately? Yeah. Uh, does that look like a place that needs 300 deputies? That's an army, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he had his own little private army. But they also brought in state troopers and mine guards from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. And had a, about 2,000 people that were uh, protecting the ridge lines. And then the miners attack, trying to get through it. And the miners already knew, um, they already had scouting reports. They knew where Chafin's men would be, and they tried to outflank them. They do it like a double pincer movement and try to hit both flanks of the defensive line. So it's called the Battle of Blair Mountain. So actually only a small portion of the battle took place on Blair Mountain. Mm-hmm. Up, uh, if you go further north, up around Crooked Creek and Mill Creek, there was intense fighting, very intense fighting up through there because they're attacking both ends. Blair Mountain was the southern flank of this battlefield. Anyway, they fight for five days. Miners never make a decisive breakthrough, largely because the defenders have machine guns and the, the attackers don't. And if you've ever been there, this is why I hope that one day it becomes a park. If you're there, you can see it. You can see how steep the ridge the ridge is, how steep the hillsides are. If you're up on top of that hill with a machine gun, right. people down at the bottom, they're not getting to the top of that no chance. hill. Yeah. Um, but still yet, the fact that these guys, most of them were not trained warriors. I mean, you had a number of World War I veterans, but these guys weren't trained. You know, what would it take to get you to grab a gun and march 50 miles and potentially, you know, assault, you know, entrenched machine guns, yeah. you know. So you have to look at this system that they, all the stuff that they went through and endured. And, you know, um, uh, of course, it ends after after federal troops are brought in. Of course, they're called the Redneck Army because of the red bandanas they were wearing around their necks. Um is that what is that what that loosely I've read that that like in that and also applies to just like farm agriculture based folks that work in farm settings that have sunburn on their neck or cold mm-hmm. rednecks because kind of you know you're out in the fields you're uneducated presumably and then is that so with the history with the mines with the red bandanas is that also kind of where the term redneck possibly stems from Yeah okay so the origins of the term redneck First of all, you've got, on one hand, you've got this red bandana tradition, right? Okay, that goes back, the earliest case I've seen of it is, goes back to 1877. Actually, railroad workers in Martinsburg, West Virginia, okay, uh, wore, wore red bandanas around the neck. Most of them were Irish mm. uh, workers. Um, so it may have some kind of Irish and Scottish connection. But anyway, they start wearing red bandanas after that coal miners start doing it too. So wearing the red bandana, they started calling them rednecks. But then redneck meant you were pro-union. Yeah. I see. Uh, I see. So the, me, the word had an entirely different meaning. You did have, uh, at around the 1890s, the word redneck also began to be applied to people in the rural South that were farmers. Right. Um, but it's when, so, I mean, it was used in various places for various times, but the reason that the term redneck means what it means today is because the miners that were fighting this conflict, they didn't control the media, right? The industry had heavily in, heavy influence in the media. 
And so the industry, uh, you know, if you control the media, you control the story. Sure. And so their story was, you know, why are these miners being so violent? Why is there this gigantic uprising? Well, they, it's not because they were being mistreated. It's not because of company money or company stores or, or company guards. It's because they're backwards. They're uncivilized. They're all drunk on moonshine. They're just uh, these crazy backwoods people that are standing in the way of progress, and they're all stirred up. And uh, they're, they're just feuding mountaineers. And so... Nothing to see here. Move along, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and so if you portray a group of people as ignorant, backward, uneducated, silly, whatever, it uh, you don't have to take them seriously. You don't right. have to take what they say seriously. And it's, it's that uh, identity or false identity that stays with us to the, you know, to this very day. I mean, if you go to a pit game, Oh, what do the pit fans yell at you? Uh, right. You know, th they throw every single stereotype at you in the book because it doesn't matter if you're from Wheeling or Martinsburg, yeah, or from, middle, yeah, or from the middle of Boone County. Uh, as soon as you step across the same line, uh, the state line, you, you're you're a redneck to them, yeah. you're hillbilly yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, so take us back to, to the the battle and the breakthrough that it ultimately yeah. occurred. Well, they never made a full breakthrough. Yeah. They almost made a breakthrough in the northern uh, flank. Had the battle continued for a couple more days, I think that they would have ultimately made a breakthrough uh, because more and more miners just kept pouring in. Uh, by the time they surrendered, there, there was probably around 15,000 miners uh, along the battle lines. Um but, you know, when federal troops came in, the miners wouldn't attack federal troops. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were they weren't fighting against the American government. Uh, you know, they weren't fighting against the idea of America. They were fighting against these coal companies. That was their enemy, not uh, the U.S. military. So they surrendered to the military without a fight. Yeah. And then so so basically just setting it setting the scene then so a couple of years like how does it fizzle out then like 1923 24 25 does things kind of return to a more normalcy does coal start humming again i mean uh okay and when so, do these counties ultimately become unionized how does that all kind of play out okay so the 1920s were a, a rough year for coal miners and a rough year a rough decade for coal miners in west yeah. virginia the the molten aftermath of that is first of all it for a decade, it wipes out the Union in West Virginia wow. because um, there's four years, not four years, uh, up until 1924, a series of trials uh, over the Battle of Bourbon, known as the Treason Trials. And mm -hmm. they started up in Charlestown, up in the Jefferson County Courthouse, the same courthouse where John Brown was tried in for treason. The miners went up there and, and wow. were tried uh, up there. But in fact, if you go to the Mine Wars Museum, we have one of the cages uh, that was used in the Jefferson County Courthouse in those trials. So we oh have jail bars, the original bars that were there. Um, but the, uh, so you had all these trials that, that caught the whole attention of the nation and even international. Um, but it, it makes the union go bankrupt, even though the union gets out of it. And like Frank Keeney got acquitted, Bill Blizzard, 
who was commanding the miners in the field. He was acquitted. So most of these guys were acquitted. You did have two coal miners that agreed to testify against uh, Frank Keeney and Bill Blizzard, one of the other leaders, but both of those guys ended up dead. Um <laughs> who agreed to testify against them. Uh, both of them were shot in the head. Yeah, it's funny how that happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, so, but the, it bankrupts the union. So uh, they go from having about 50,000 union coal miners um, at the Battle of Blair Mountain to by the end of the decade, they have less than 1,000 uh, union coal miners. So, and this means that there's no regulations, no oversight, the 1920s saw the highest uh, number of deaths in coal mines in West Virginia history. Uh, 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 between 400 and 500 a year uh, were dying in West Virginia coal mines to the 1920s. Um, but uh, what unionized West Virginia was the Franklin Roosevelt administration uh, during the Great Depression uh, when they passed the National Industrial Relations Act, Recovery Act, uh, that uh, legalized unions. Uh, and um, even though that law was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, they passed another law after that that basically said the same thing wow. in 1935. But anyway, that legalized unions. And as soon as unions were legal and the companies couldn't do anything to stop it, uh, the, the whole state unionized uh, within a couple of months. Um However, uh, of course, the you know the, there would be battles between unions and and, and co-operators for decades, and co-operators would get the upper hand in the 1980s over the union. The union remains powerful in West Virginia from about the 30s into the 1980s, but after that, their influence really starts to plummet, uh, largely because of Massey Energy and a guy by the name of Don Blankenship, mm -hmm. uh, who defeats the union in a number of major strikes. So. Okay, we'll, we'll take a pause there. So, first of all, that was a, a wonderful recap and yeah, such a deep you. dive. You yeah. were like no. maybe one, one of the foremost experts on this on on Blair Mountain. You didn't want to be the Blair Mountain guy, but you're the Blair Mountain guy in a lot of yeah. people's eyes. Yeah, um, in how, most how circles. Yeah, exactly. But so then, so you describe the period then of like we were talking earlier in the podcast about the exclusion of West Virginia history, and we've had or this feature on of West Virginia history, and we've had a number of guests on here talking about the you know the the paradox of being like proud of your coal mining roots like i i can say my it is prideful for me to say that my like great grandparents and whatnot came over from europe and worked hard and that's the reason i'm mm -hmm. here today like two generations back they had nothing and then now we live a comfortable life because they made that sacrifice i can feel proud of that while at the same time recognizing how abusive and you know just flat out corrupt and awful in in many ways the coal companies were towards their workers but that conversation is nuanced and it's difficult to have in a public format because it's pride it's ego it's all these different things and money quite frankly at the mm. center of everything but so you described the period from 1930 i guess my point is to 19 you know into the late 80s 90s it was purposely excluded maybe similar to like the daughters of the confederacy which i'm sure you're mm -hmm. familiar with as a historian like their like very deliberate attempt to rewrite the narrative of the mm -hmm. civil war similar in the fashion with west virginia history what where, where did it start to break i mean did where did we start like textbooks and resources start popping up about this and then maybe a lot of your work with the the mine history all the way in 2022 is actually some of the some of the most important work that's finally being recognized at a, at a big level but yeah. is there a point where it starts to shift and we start realizing wow like this was the largest 
I think if you look on the Wikipedia uh-huh. page for the Battle of Blair Mountain, it's the largest armed uprising since the American Civil War. Right. I mean, it's just like a blip in the radar, like we've mentioned on on history books. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, a lot of things here. Uh, well, the the first time it gets mentioned in a West Virginia history textbook was in the seventies. Uh, there's a paragraph devoted to it. Um, <laughs> that basically says, oh, there was some issue in the coal mines, which led to a confrontation at Blair Mountain. Moving on. Um, um, but uh, the, it's in the early 90s, uh, late 80s and early 90s that it begins to get some attention. You've got the movie Mate One that came out in the late 80s. Denise mm-hmm. Giardina, who wrote a wonderful novel called Storming Heaven uh, that came out in the late 80s. And then you have a couple of history books that came out in that time period that kind of sparked a little bit of interest. Um, but uh, then it kind of dies down for a while, uh, particularly in the early 2000s. And that's, um, so it has a little bit of a kind of sticks its head up out, you know, the history does for a few years in the 80s and early 90s. But then early 2000s, it goes away again because a new organization gets created called the Friends of Coal mm-hmm. uh, in the <laughs> early 2000s. And uh, the Friends of Coal did a, uh, a really effective um, and in some ways quite brilliant propaganda campaign uh, throughout West Virginia. First thing they did, of course, was fuse Friends of Coal with sporting events, yeah. right? So you have the Friends of Coal Bowl, you know, yeah. and they yeah. sponsor all kinds of, uh, of events and, uh, throughout the state uh, to this day. They had coal, they sponsored a thing called Coal in the Classroom. Uh, where they work with uh, places in coal communities to to shape their curriculum so that it's a pro-coal curriculum. So all that, any kind of progress that was made in the 80s and, and early 90s got wiped out by all of that. And then they move, you know, to, to wipe out the actual places that are connected to the history. And it, it is very in, it, deliberate that they were going after Blair Mountain. I mean, there's a lot of coal still left in West Virginia, and there's a lot of mountains that they could have blasted, but they chose this one, uh, you know, this particular one. And it, it was when they first got uh, the permits and, and prepared to blast. It's when Don Blankenship was CEO of Massey Energy. And um, he hate and I've met Blankenship. He's been to to my museum, uh, the Mountain Wars Museum. Uh, it's not my museum, uh, but <laughs> a museum I helped start. Uh, he he's been to the Mountain Wars Museum, and uh, I was there when he was there. Uh, you know, and he's he despises the Union or monuments to it or any mentioning of this history with all of his being. And there are other people that do too, by the way. There's a descendant of the Baldwin Feltz, uh, William Baldwin, the guy that founded the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, the Mine Guards. There's a direct descendant of them that lives in Matewan to this day. He stands outside of our museum and he offers up what he calls truth tours. Uh, where he uh, of mate one where he says you know the ball the mine guards were actually the good guys and the miners were the bad guys and uh, he like tries to stop people from going into our museum and offers up alternative tours so this it, it's it's still still it's, it's still part of our history it. man it's still yeah. part, it's, it's still so fundamentally baked into the way West Virginians you know view ourselves view our history i mean mm-hmm. it's still and it's still a divisive issue and it's i think as if you insulted it in any way it it because well then you're insulting my my family my history yeah. and that's offensive to me and that yeah. and that's that's true in a lot of ways some people feel and 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, like, how do you think we, how do we talk about it? Is it more just long form educational pieces about the realities of history? Like, how do we get to a point where we can simultaneously recognize how brutal coal was, but also feel proud of coming from an Appalachian hardworking culture? Like those two things shouldn't be mutually exclusive as a, as a yeah, human, they should. like we should understand our history, but we could also say, yeah, like we're mountain people. We were hard scrapping, hardworking people. But we can also recognize that it was pretty ugly back, you know, and still it's still a difficult job. It's still extremely dangerous to be yeah. a roof boulder in a coal mine. It's not exactly an easy job on your body. Um, and it's very it's dangerous work. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, you can get into the environmental impacts of it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how we get there. Maybe just more conversation, more pieces, more people like you writing books, educational pieces, more museums. Um, I don't know what it all culminates to, but I think if a lot of people appreciate it, at least we can have some maybe more internal understanding of, of where we've been and maybe where we're headed. You know, it, it's uh, when we first tried to start a little museum in Blair right after we did our protest march, and it didn't work out at all. We had uh, the company had their own private guards. Uh, they still do. They would kind of harass uh, our little uh, crew that worked there and uh, we had a lot of threats to burn the place down and all this. And so we kind of abandoned that project in 2012. And then we started up the Mine Wars Museum in Matewan in a different county where people were more receptive uh, of us. But we went from people trying to run us out of town to now people come from all over to come to our, our museum. Coalfield Development was just there last week. Uh, if you know that they were a part of a group that got a gigantic grant from the Biden administration last week, that 60 big $62 million uh, yeah. grant that they got. Their whole team was there last week. And the history is inspiring people to, uh, you can have a strong regional pride with this history. Uh, the thing is distinguishing between coal miners and coal companies. Uh, people use the term coal as kind of this all-encompassing umbrella that covers the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, you need to we need to work with our language a little bit. Being a friend of coal doesn't necessarily mean you're a friend of coal miners, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because <laughs> the interests of the company and, and the, the workers irony. aren't always exactly the same. And, and yes, there is a lot to be proud of with our coal heritage. I mean, Coal powered the British and the American fleets in World War One. Right. You know, helped win that war, um, and coal played a big role in World War Two too, and it played a big role in the industrial transition of the world. Cool. So I mean, it does play these really uh, big pivotal roles, uh, but also people shouldn't think that uh, the people that the the West Virginians should have to sacrifice you know their dignity and their heritage and their land and even personal wealth for that right um, and that's where uh, we begin to have the conversation I think Blair Mountain is a place the more people that understand the history and get to know it it begins to change people's conversation that's why that's why the powers that be fear the history so much yeah. is it does open the door of because if you're on the coal company end of this you don't want to have this conversation right mm -hmm. uh yeah. you don't want that you don't want to talk about alternative economies or a new future uh that, that, that might shift away right you want to keep things the way they are you want people to keep their head down you want people to only have limited information sure. so uh, as we, as the museum continues to grow, when we started in 2015, there was nothing in Mate One. They had our little tiny museum and a, a Mexican place. 
um, because somehow <laughs> there's the Mexican place in every coal town, even though they don't have anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's a Mexican place and our little museum. That's it in this little town. Now we've had, I think, five businesses have opened up in that okay. town since our wow. museum has. Yeah. Uh, people are coming. I was, I was there last weekend. There was somebody from Washington State, a family from Washington State that came to West Virginia just to that's see our cool. museum. Just to explore yeah. that. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. yeah. Um, People from other states coming in, the people that come on the ATV trails, you know. So heritage tourism, it's not a replacement for coal, all right? It's not going to replace the coal industry, but it's a step in the right direction. It's yeah. a way to um, people to have a regional pride and to bring in a new type of job uh, and a new type of economy. And we've got to try everything that we can try because I don't care. Uh, yes, the Ukraine war has, has enabled coal to, uh, to to remain on life support for a little while longer uh, because of some of the energy issues in, in Europe, mm -hmm. but that's a temporary thing. Um, coal's never coming back to the way it was and we have to deal with that reality and mm -hmm. some of that dealing with that reality is coming to terms with our past. A couple little things and then we'll let you go. I, I will say over time, maybe one of the cooler aspects of uh, the mine wars history is that uh, more and more resources have popped up over the years, especially over the last 30 years. And each individual coal town has just such a unique story. And uh, we picked up a couple of books uh, like this one. It's called The Pictorial History of Paint Creek. Mm. It's by Dale Payne. Yeah. Um, do you know Dale? I do not know Dale. So he has uh, a couple of them. Uh, here's one, the Paint, or it's uh, oh. the Mine Wars, Cabin okay. Creek and Paint Creek, and even mm. inside... Um, this, he talks about some of the other little stories and some of the books, Fayette County, the early years, vintage Fayette County, um, the history of Eskdale. And then he gets into like all these little stories about just these individual coal towns that all had, you know, war zone-esque stories <laughs> all about them that, you know, were part of this grandiose, um, story of the mine wars it's just really unique you know to to really dive into some of those individual little stories that made the, the bigger picture whole yeah yeah and by the way i have met him i don't yeah. know him but i've yeah, met, met him. him yeah yeah it's well, a um, bear or something frank, yeah, well, frank keeney your grandfather lived to 88 years i'm looking at his picture right here on wikipedia he looks like a tough dude by the way he looks like he could <laughs> he takes no shit here clearly he lived to 88 years old died in 1970 may 22nd 1970 you don't look a day over 40 so i'm guessing did you, you never got to meet your great-grandfather frank i never got to meet my great-grandfather um he died before i was born um but he did live a long time it's amazing that he lived as long as he did because he was a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker was he uh yes sense. he was a stressed out guy <laughs> i think he'd be i think he'd be proud of you man i, I really yeah, think, I think he would so be. Too. let me ask you this have you ever been threatened have you ever been fearful that somebody maybe not for your life but has anybody ever threatened you and said what you're doing is wrong you're making a, a mess of things you yeah. know other than your march to to blair mountain which is in the book but mm -hmm. maybe tell us like you're on social you media a sure. story <laughs> do you have a story where somebody was like you're an effing idiot you're wrong okay. you know go yeah, to hell yeah. any of that i actually uh, actually left facebook in 2014 because i was getting so many nasty messages and people yeah. were just saying so many nasty things actually that turned out to be a good thing leaving facebook <laughs> yeah, probably good for your mental tremendously health. good for my mental health yeah um but um uh, yeah i did get a number of different threats uh and sometimes got followed 
keep in mind there were three surface mining permits on the Blair Mountain battlefield, and the biggest one was Agkin's Fork. Okay, according to that permit itself, with today's value of coal, it's about $150 million worth of coal in one of the three permits, okay? If you if you challenge that, if there's that much money involved, they're not gonna just leave you alone. Right. So I've had incidents that have been really, really touchy with authorities um, that, that have been uh, kind of rough. And if I, if I, luckily I know some people in a variety of police forces that have, you know, helped me out and yeah. got me through yeah. it. But yeah. uh, one incident I will tell you about that, that I think is, is kind of cool. This was right when uh, things were really heating up and I, I was on television, uh, one of the evening news, they they interviewed me and everything. And this was when, when I was first getting attention for this. And uh, I was teaching an evening class at Southern in Logan. And uh, after class, I, it was an e I didn't get to see the broadcast. And so I, I went uh, back into my office and I'm in my office after class. It's like eight o'clock at night or something like that. And one of my students walks in. He was a surface miner, huge guy, like like covered the whole door of my office. And it was Mike. He comes in and says, yeah, I saw your little announcement on TV. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like this, this may yeah. not turn out well and i said yeah yeah i said i didn't see it but i know what you're talking about and uh about blair mountain and all that and i said what do you think he said well i think you need to watch your back around here and he from that evening on he actually escorted me to my car to keep me safe oh wow um uh, in the evenings and yeah. that was a, a really powerful thing because, number one, it showed, first of all, that, that there was people that thought that I was in some kind of danger. But at the same time, this is a guy who was supposed to be on the on the opposite side. But because he's heard me teach yeah. and he knows the story, he he was supportive of me, even though he was a surface miner. Mm -hmm. He worked on mountaintop removal sites. Uh, and that was something that, on one hand, it worried me that I had to be. <laughs> that had yeah. to be protected. On the other hand, it uh, was encouraging. Uh, and it also the encouraging thing about being followed and getting threats uh, <laughs> is that uh, if you're not uh, a threat to them, then they ignore you. Yeah. Uh, and they weren't ignoring me, which told me that we could win. Mm. That's good. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Wow. Yeah. Look at, what a story, man. What a, what yeah. a unique, what a, the whole great grandfather connection just so unique and so interesting. And the work that you've done, man, it, I'm sure it's just immensely fulfilling for you personally to kind of do this, but, but then also think about it. Like you said, you're educating and maybe inspiring and informing West Virginians that maybe even just simply due to their age that they just don't understand or can appreciate this, mm -hmm. no fault of their own. But now it's like, there's more, I think maybe social media can help these books, podcasts. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's all tremendous stuff, man. So phenomenal, phenomenal work. Yeah. Chuck, thank you, man. This yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks for very, having me. Maybe one day we can, uh, go up to Blair Mountain and have a pepperoni roll. Uh. <laughs> Hell yeah. Love it. Live, live back in the old days, huh? Like back in the old days. <laughs> That's right. So, Chuck, awesome. thanks, man. That's right. Thanks, guys. Yeah.